Our story begins how most often do, with a group of strangers united by a destiny they don't yet understand. We start on the sixth day of Eliant of the year 1544 in a grassy clearing bordered by a forest of trees on one side and a seemingly never-ending curved wall of white stone on the other. Here is where we meet our would-be heroes, each one searching for something, looking for something thought lost. Soteria is a water genasi searching for the family that didn't want her, needing answers to questions that have been burning for longer than she can remember. She carries the burden of her past on her chest in the form of a tattoo that she keeps carefully hidden from unwanted prying eyes. Trying to find the lich that killed her mentor, Okta, a tiefling ranger, is hoping to gain the power to protect her home from further undead invaders. But will she be willing to travel this path if it leads her back to the shadows of her past? Draken and Draco, two bronze dragonborns, the result of the defilement of a slave by a rich noble, loved dearly by their recently departed mother, and the brothers are on a journey to find out where they truly come from, and return their mother's ashes home. Snake Rattle doesn't remember much about his past, but what he does remember dominates his sleep with nightmares. Now the young Kenku is on his own, trying to find the person who massacred his family, and avenge them with his own blade. Banished from his dwarven home for a murder he did not commit, Trayvok hopes that by wielding his father's warhammer, he can bring his father's true killer to justice and restore honor to his name. The one thing they all have in common? Well, we'll get to that in a bit. The group finds themselves awakening in a field with no memory as to how they came to be there. The only clue as to where they are is a wooden message board with two silver dragons in either corner affixed to the stone wall that holds various parchment signs now illegible with age. A sign that says in cheery lettering, Welcome to Whitefair, outsiders enter at their own risk, hangs above the message board. In the distance, a tall silver tower reaches above the wall. After a few awkward moments of introductions, they all come to the realization that they are each here because they signed a contract, exchanging their souls in return for information they each desperately want. The only way out of the contract? Complete a set challenge and their souls will be returned. But the terms of the challenge weren't made clear. As they inspect the wall in front of them, a woman in cream-colored robes holding a staff appears in the clearing with them. A human with lovely features and light blonde hair that falls in waves just to her shoulders. She introduces herself as Lyanna Clearbrook, and tells the party that they are the grand city of Whitefair, a city not well known among the common populace of Faerun. Baron Silvercrest likes keeping Whitefair secluded and protects his city quite well. She goes on to explain that they are all there because they are searching for something, and if they can make it to the city center, the Baron will give them the information that they seek. But the Baron is also using their desperateness to his advantage and for entertainment at their expense. After answering their questions to the best of her abilities, Lyanna creates an opening in the wall with a touch of her staff. With a solemn look, she wishes the party good luck as they step through the opening and the wall closes behind them. Ahead of them, a small piece of parchment flutters to the ground. On it is written a short sentence, Don't climb the walls. They agree to with more stone walls and quickly come to the realization that they are in a labyrinth. For the next several days, the strangers, now companions, traverse the labyrinth, meeting some residents of the supposed city, and also learn that the Baron hasn't been himself for some time, and that hobgoblins have somehow infiltrated the labyrinth and are terrorizing the citizens. 
Along their journey, they find a young displacer beast being tortured by hobgoblins and decide to rescue it. Immediately, it bonds with the party, and specifically Akka, who lovingly names her Audrey. They eventually meet the lovely Greenwalker couple, Hunter, a human, and Mieleth, an elf, and their five children. They invite the party in for dinner and explain, as everyone else has, how the Baron has been acting strangely. The next day, they come across Star's magical and mundane oddities, a unique shop run by a snow leopard tabaxi, Star in the Snow. In her shop, Sar sells all sorts of magical and non-magical items, of which the party is greatly interested. When she learns that the party is going to try to stop what the Baron is doing, she offers to give them an amulet of proof against detection and location if they succeed, an item that piques Soteria's interest immediately. Star also informs them that because of the Baron's lack of security with the Labyrinth, a blue dragon wormling has decided to make an area nearby its new lair. A situation that the party is quick to deal with, and, with their victory, a sizable reward, which they are happy to spend at Star's store. Star is also more than happy to take the dragon scales and agree to partner with a blacksmith in town to make Octa armor once the Baron is dealt with. Continuing on through the labyrinth, they come across an abandoned house, but once inside, the door locks behind them. Through the solving of riddles and puzzles, the party learns that Whitefair has been ruled and protected by the Silvercrest family for countless generations, and that the current Baron, Baron Falroche Silvercrest, inherited the town from his mother and father 230 years ago, when he was 248 years old. The book they had found goes on to explain that Whitefair is a town of sanctuary, offering solace and shelter to any who may need it and that it is protected by a labyrinth that surrounds the city center, with only one way in and one way out. Although the residents of Whitefair can navigate the top of the walls quite easily, thanks to a bit of Baron Thalros's magic. Whitefair is also guarded by the two great silver dragons, Zarari and Kimbanth, who watch over the city from afar and keep it safe from those who wish harm against those who live there. The dragons themselves haven't been seen by anyone in over 200 years, but the citizens are adamant in their belief in the dragons, and worship them as though they were the same as gods. Eventually, the group manages to solve their way out of the house, and makes a quick escape, fearful of being trapped again. With the new knowledge that the citizens can walk on top of the walls, Snake Rattle suggests they try climbing them, and disregarding the note that Lyanna had left them, he clambers up onto the wall. Before he can even right himself, Snake Rattle is struck by a thunderous wave of energy. An echoing boom resonates across the labyrinth, and Snake Rattle falls from the wall, unconscious. After some quick healing from Soteria, the party agrees that that was probably a bad idea, and keeps moving. Eventually, the group stumbles upon another house, where two women, Mina and Alex, live with their adopted baby boy, Jalen. Offering to let the party rest and feed them lunch, the couple explains the odd noises they keep hearing from the city's graveyard. The graveyard has always been haunted, but not with this level of a malevolence. Further into the labyrinth finds the party following a sign that offers a reward in exchange for the answering of riddles, and the party is not disappointed. In an open area, the party finds a sphinx waiting for them, and for those that answered their riddles correctly, they were given gifts. Soteria was granted with a cloak of protection, Trayvok was given a gem of seeing, and Draken was gifted the shield of sacrifice. The sphinx left them with a simple message. Use the clearing to rest easy for the night, and take your journey up in the morning. Travel easy, brave heroes, for you have gained the favor of two dragons this day. Then he lifts into the sky and before taking off, transformed into an ancient silver dragon, one very similar to the pictures they had seen in the book back at the locked house. 
That night, they were visited by Lyanna, who told them of her suspicions that the Baron might not actually be the Baron that she knows. She gifted the party a few hopefully helpful potions, and then bid them good night. In the morning, the party packs up, and as they continue the path through the labyrinth, they are met by the distressed eldest daughter of the Greenwalker family. Loratrice tells them that their youngest daughter, Aurelie, has gone missing. The party agrees to keep an eye out for her and go on their way. Not long after, they come across another house. This one with smoke rising from its chimney. After a few moments of inspection, a silver dragonborn appears on the wall next to the house. After the group introduces themselves and assures him that they mean no harm, the dragonborn introduces himself as Taran Noramonis, a long-time resident of Whitefair who hunts and forges for some of the families that live in the labyrinth. He invites the party in for breakfast, and over a warm meal he agrees with Lyanna's story of the Baron not being himself. He insists that Falros is a good man, and requests that the party figure out what is going on in the city centre. He also tells them to be careful around the graveyard. Later that day, the party stumbles upon another group of hobgoblins, and gains a little insight as to what the hobgoblins are doing in the labyrinth. The party finds a crudely drawn map, marked with what they assume to be areas where tunnels are being dug. That afternoon, the party comes across a sign for the graveyard, but a piece of parchment is nailed over it, declaring that the graveyard is closed. After a quick consensus, they agree to leave well enough alone and march along past the graveyard entrance. Finally, as the day is drawing to a close, the group comes across a walkway with suns surrounded by two dragons painted on the walls. Recognizing the symbol for Pelor, the party agrees that this might be a good place to rest until they reach the end of the walk and are met with a dilapidated building that was once a beautiful and well-maintained church. They're about to leave to search for a better place to sleep when Audrey starts to growl, and without preamble, bounds towards the temple. Following the angry displacer beast into the building, the party is met with the sight of three hags gathered around a cauldron, and near the back of the church, inside of an iron cage, sits Arlie and a woman with blue hair and a slender frame. The group quickly finds themselves in combat that they're not sure they can win, even with the help of the woman in the cage, and when things start to look grim, Audrey steps in front of the party and speaks. She threatens the hags, claiming that they are invading her city and endangering her people. As she speaks, the form of the displacer beast shifts into that of a silver dragon. She announces that she is Zorari, the protector of Whitefair, and with this revelation, the hags flee the temple. Once the danger has passed, Zorari reverts to her displacer beast form, and they free the woman and Arlie from the cage. The woman introduces herself as Selea, a half-elf sorcerer with a penchant for fire magic and witty banter. Once Arlie is safely returned home, Zorari tells the party that she is sorry she had to deceive them, but she wanted to be sure that they could be trusted. She is concerned about the graveyard and would feel better if they could go inspect it to make sure that everything is all right. The party agrees to scope out the graveyard the next day, and they settle down for a night's rest in the rundown temple, content that they will be safe with the dragon on their side. The next afternoon finds the party in the middle of the Whitefair graveyard, with not a shred of undead activity to be found. After a short discussion, the group decided to hunker down in the graveyard and stay the night to make sure everything was fine. Everything was not fine. Just as the sun was setting, a figure in a red robe appeared near the entrance to the graveyard, and with a motion of their hand, the residents of the graveyard rose out of their graves. After a harrowing battle, the party comes out victorious, and a much-needed rest is had. With the looming knowledge that they might be facing off with Baron Falros within the next few days, the party's sleep is anything but peaceful. 
The next two days in the labyrinth are uneventful, until the afternoon of the second day, they reach a gate guarded by two dozen people. Almost immediately, the party could sense something wasn't quite right, and with the guards all having equally blank stares and monotone voices, it was easy to tell they were somehow being controlled. Once inside the city walls, they are greeted with a beautiful city with brightly colored buildings and elegant signs hanging over shops, but the once well-kept streets are abandoned. They make their way to the tower in the center of the city where they meet Lyanna. After a short conversation with Lyanna, she agrees to fight with them and leads them up through the tower to its roof. On the roof, they finally meet the man who brought them to the labyrinth, but he is not what he seems. After a tense exchange of words between Thalros and Lyanna, Thalros admits to being an imposter and reveals his true form, a red-skinned tiefling with black markings running the length of his arms and neck, disappearing beneath his shirt. He introduces himself as Mormoros and reveals that he and Opta used to be friends. In an obvious villain manner, Mormoros announces that he will have to kill the party, and Lyanna steps forward, wings enveloped in radiant energy burst forth from her back, revealing herself as an Azamar. The battle does not go well. When things are starting to look like they're going to turn in the party's favor, Mormoros calls out for help, and what answers his call is a devil, with pale skin and red markings and runes all over its body. Glowing yellow eyes, no mouth, and vicious-looking horns that curl down and out from its head and shoulders. It spoke in their minds, telling them how fruitless their fighting was, and with a point of his finger, Mormoros casts a spell towards Snake Rattle and the young Kenku fell to the ground, dead. Mormoros and the devil are quick to flee afterwards, and the party mourns the death of their companion, while Lyanna searches the tower to find the real Baron Thalros locked away in a room, sleeping under the conditions of an imprisonment spell. With a quick-thinking use of a spell scroll, Lyanna manages to wake the Baron and quickly fill him in on what has happened, while leading him up to the roof where Kimband and Zorari sweep down from the sky to greet him. After an exchange of words, Kimbanth offers up the necessary diamonds, and Thalros tries to resurrect Snake Rattle, but for reasons unknown to them, he can't be brought back. Thalros introduces himself to the party, and once he has been made aware of everything that has happened, he offers to prepare a house for them to stay in whenever they're in Whitefair, and to put them up in the Dragon's Nest Inn. He tells them to take some time to recover and explore Whitefair once it's back to normal, and that he will use that time to look into Mormoros and whatever the devil was that he summoned. He then makes an announcement to the town from the top of the tower and decrees that a festival will be had in one week. In the following two weeks, the party picks out a house and hires two housekeepers, David and Rose, from the Dragon's Haven, a collection of safe houses where people who worked with a woman named Iovana in her brothel vacation or retire to. They visit several shops and meet many of the citizens of Whitefair, including Wendy Shore, Star's sister who runs the Silver Crown, a jewelry shop in town. Wendy has put out a reward for anyone that helps her locate a man who came through town several months ago and stayed with her, but left without a word, a job the party is more than happy to accept. The only clue she has is a handful of odd coins that Octa recognizes as Zentara-minted coins. Zotaria, Octa, and Selea decide to pay a visit to Mercia the Mystic, a flamboyant air genasi fortune teller who offers to tell them their fortunes. Octa is told that her past might not be as far away as it might seem. Salea receives some troubling news of her home, and Soteria is informed that some of her memories appear to be blocked off. Mercia suggests that Soteria go see Lyanna, as she might be able to free the locked memories. The girls go straight to the tower and speak with Lyanna. The Azamar is more than happy to help Soteria, and after a quick restoration spell, Soteria's memories come flooding back to her. 
She remembers that the Temple of Arl, where she had run away from, was planning to use her in some kind of ritual that had something to do with a tattoo on her chest. That night, Soteria dreams of her home temple and of Arl reaching out for her, claiming that she is hers. The day of the festival is lively and exciting, a day filled with music, food, drink, and merriment. Soteria wins a pie-eating contest, and Octa takes first place in an archery competition. The day after the festival, Thalros summons the party to his tower and tells them the information that he and Lyanna have found. The creature they had fought was called a pact devil named Tegramore, and Mormoros has tricked all of them into signing contracts with him, of which there are only three ways out of. For the devil to dismiss it, for him to die, or a wish spell. Thalros tells the party that their best bet is to hunt Mormoros and Tegramore down. He suggests looking in highly populated places and offers up a position in one of two caravans, one heading for Baldur's Gate and one heading for Neverwinter. After telling the group that they are in the High Forest, just southwest of the Star Mountains, the same forest that Okta calls home, they decide that they want to head for Baldur's Gate, and Thalros sends them off with a letter he says to take to Donovan Draxley at the Mystic Vile, and to meet Lyanna at the back wall of the city in the next few days. As they are talking, Thalros seems to be eyeing Trayvok's hammer, but when he is questioned about it, he waves them off, saying it wasn't anything important. At the Mystic Vial, Donovan gives them several different types of healing potions at the bequest of Baron Falros. Later that week, the group meets with Lyanna at the back wall, and she shows them how to use the walls by tapping her toes three times against the wall, and it folds out to form a staircase so they can get up onto the walls to walk on them. As the party exits the labyrinth much faster than how they entered, they meet two beautiful silver-haired people standing in the clearing where they had first met. They tell the party that they are Zorari and Kimbenth, and gift the party a dragon scale, saying that it will summon Zorari, but only once and for a limited time. Zorari also gives Akka a box of familiars as an apology for deceiving her in the labyrinth. After saying their goodbyes, they continue on their way to meet up with the caravan Thalros had set them up with. The caravan that Thalros had arranged passage with is called the Tenth Ring, run by two humans, Carson Brightdane and his wife, Elita. They are accompanied by other hired sellswords and the human fighter Santiago Wolfwood and the high elf cleric Delphina Moontail. With introductions out of the way, the caravan starts on its way to Boulder's Gate. They had only been traveling through the forest for two days before a lone elven guard stumbles onto the road in front of the caravan. Saleya recognizes his uniform as being one from the Everesca militia, and the man confirms this. He tells them that he is part of a scouting party that was searching for someone pretending to be Princess Raytris of Everesca, and that his group had been attacked by hobgoblins, and the others had been taken by them. Before anyone can ask him any questions, he falls unconscious. The caravan agrees to wait while the party goes to see if they can rescue any of the guard's companions. After a few hours, the party manages to track down the hobgoblin camp, and with a well-placed fireball from Saleya and quick thinking, they make quick work of the hobgoblins and free the other Everaskan guards. The captain of the group introduces himself as Vero Galadel, and explains that they are indeed a scouting group for King Elzalor Amakir, searching for someone rumored to be impersonating his deceased sister, Raytris. They have been ordered to find this person and bring her back dead. The group can tell by his tone that he might not be as loyal to Elzalor as he lets on. The news of Elzalor being called King surprises Saleya, but she keeps it well hidden until she can talk with her companions privately about how, up until three years ago, Elzalor was just a prince. They led the wounded Everescan guards to the caravan and reunite them with their other members. 
After a night of well-needed rest, the caravan and the Everaskan guards go their separate ways. Several days later, the party reaches Succumber, and with it, a new revelation of the perils their new task has set upon them. That night, they are accosted by a flaming skull and are quick to put it down. After the skull is dispatched, everyone, except for Saleya, hears a voice in their heads that they recognize as Tegramore. He tells them that they are running a fool's errand, and that they should go live their lives while they still can, and if they continue on, the skull will only torment them further. Refusing to let a simple skull scare them off, the party continues on, but the next night, as Tegramore promised, the skull reappeared. This time, the party was prepared, and after they had killed it, a simple dispel magic spell from Soteria ensured it wouldn't bother them again. After an exhausting caravan ride and a harsh encounter with hellhounds sent by Tegramore, the party earns themselves a well-earned two-day break in Daggerford. Here they meet the captain of the guard, Christine Allwell, and after a revealed wedding ring halts any flirting, Saleya decides to ask for help learning how to use a shield. Christine offers up a few lessons and tells Saleya where she can purchase a book on mastering a shield. By the time they would reach Calimport, Saleya would be one well-defended sorcerer. The rest of their trip down the tradeway is quite uneventful until the caravan abruptly turned off the road and started heading away from the high moor. Draco quickly made his way up to the head wagon to inquire about the sudden change of direction. Carson informs him that it isn't wise to pass too close to Dragonspear Castle because of a portal to hell that is rumored to be in the depths of the ruined castle. His claims might not be too far off because soon the caravan finds themselves being chased by several spine devils carrying barbed devils. The fight is quick, but comes with a reminder that Tegramore still has them in his sights. Their travels through the Troll Claws teaches the party that, even when it comes to trolls, there's nothing that a few Saleya specials can't handle. And when the party finally makes it to the homestead of the Carson's family in the Fields of the Dead, the party breathes a sigh of relief for a chance at a safe haven. The party also quickly learns to never let their guard down, because in the middle of the night the homestead is nearly overrun with hordes of zombies. Draco, Drak, and Trevok, and Saleya stay in the main walled part of the homestead, while Soteri and Octo race against the clock to fetch the remaining members of the Carson family from the houses outside of the walls. It was a long battle, but thanks to the keen eye of Draco, they were able to make preparations and rescues just in time, and the homestead was saved. When the party leaves in the morning to head to Boulder's Gate, they make sure to keep a wide berth from the hills holding the dead. They make it to Boulder's Gate late in the evening, and after asking for directions to an inn in the lower city, Saleya decides that she requires lodgings of a higher status and goes off alone in search of such an inn. Saleya learns the hard way that the bustling city of Boulder's Gate is not a place where you want to walk alone at night, and when she reaches the fine inn that she was recommended in the upper city, her coin purse is a few hundred coins lighter. Meanwhile, the rest of the party runs into a shady drow in the streets when they get lost looking for their inn. The man introduces himself as Zerith Bariani and offers to show the group around the city as a guide, for a price, of course. Draco successfully talks him down from his very steep price, and as a good sign of faith, Zerith shows them to their inn and says that he will meet them in the morning to show them around the town. The next day, Zerith is true to his word and meets the party to act as their guide through the city, and it's a pleasant time until a, a man is thrown from the door of a nearby building, swiftly followed by a beautiful blonde-haired woman in a rather tight and revealing red dress. She points a crossbow at the man and tells him to come back when he can learn to keep his hands off of her wards when they do not want them. It's at this point that they notice that Zerith has vanished. 
The woman, who introduces herself as Iovana, invites them into her establishment, the Lust of the Dragon, a brothel of exquisite taste. On one wall are dozens of portraits of people of all different races. Next to each portrait is a candle. When a young boy named Charlie comes down from the stairs to inform her that one girl isn't feeling well, Iovana explains that the candles represent the types of clients her wards are willing to take. Blue for men, red for women, and purple for both. And if they have a black candle as well, it means that they're willing to be a little rougher. Each portrait also has a small scroll that can be pulled out and offers a brief description of the worker and the types of clients they are willing to take. Iovana snuffs out one candle while going on to tell the party that her wards only work when they want to, and only take who they want to. She makes it quite clear that her workers are to be treated with respect, and anything less will be met with violence. After a short tour around the brothel, Iovana sits with them, and over tea, she tells them about a town called Slumberhaven that is having a problem with missing children. She tells them that she is an old friend with Zorari and Kimbanth, and that the two dragons told her about them. She offers up a rather handsome reward if they can solve Slumberhaven's problem, and of course the party accepts. They make the half-day trip to Slumberhaven, and the next morning, with a few suspicious looks from the town's guards, gain entry to the city and directions to the mayor's house. Here is where they meet Charlie, a happy-go-lucky and ambitious young woman who has been in town for a few days also trying to solve the case of the missing children. They agree to team up for the time being and decide to start investigating. The more that they look, the more they come to find out that there is more going on than just children going missing. All of the children that went missing have something in common. An unhappy home life. From a friendly conversation with Dean Evanwater, the mayor's son, they find out that Fantine, his older sister and the first child to go missing three years ago, actually still visits him at night sometimes. When the party is winding down for the night at the tavern, Trayvok uses his gem of seeing to search the tavern, and notices that Charlie is not all she lets on to be. He confronts her about this, and she admits that she does have a true form, but doesn't like to show it to people, and doesn't really know what she actually is. Trayvok agrees to keep this secret from the rest of the group, for now. The group decides to do a bit more investigating into Albert, the mayor, and they split the party. Charlie, Soteria, and Saleya break into the mayor's house, while Okta, Trevok, Drock, and Draco keep their eyes on the family in question at the only tavern in town. While searching the mayor's office, they find a false bottom to a drawer in his desk which holds a contract for the sale of his firstborn daughter, who the party had originally been told died in childbirth. The sale of Victoria was to a woman named Mirabel Silverstone, the same woman who is the head priestess of the temple where Soteria grew up and is on the run from. The party decides to stake out the mayor's house from their rooms in the inn and aren't disappointed. Near the middle of the night, they see a red-cloaked form heading away from the mayor's house towards the dock. Trayvok and Drock opt to stay behind in case anything else suspicious happens while the rest of the group chase after the cloaked figure. They follow the figure down the dock and into an underground cavern where they are swiftly spotted and a chase ensues. The figure is rescued by a celestial dog by the name of Atticus and it is revealed that soon after the figure is actually Fantine Evanwater. Soteria is shocked at the appearance of Fantine, as she looks strikingly similar to her childhood friend Clara from the temple in Luskin. With a quick conversation to clear up any confusion, and with the confirmation that the party only wants to help her, 
Fantine decides to take them to the lighthouse island where the townsfolk had said that a strange woman lives. The strange woman turns out to be an Asimar archdruid named Ophelia Rainstar, a Cholton native with dark skin, white hair decorated with feathers, and golden freckles framing an ever-knowing smile. Ophelia explains to the group that she is over 500 years old and that she was sent to Slumberhaven to help Fantine and become her mentor and patron. Fantine and Ophelia explain what was going on with the children in Slumberhaven, and that Fantine used her powers as a warlock to take the children away and is now raising them with the help of her childhood friend and Ophelia on a nearby island. After a long conversation, Fantine agrees to let the party take her and the other children back to the mainland as long as the parents are going to face the consequences of their actions, to which the party happily agrees. The next day, the party calls the mayor and the rest of the parents with missing children to the town hall, where Ophelia and the others are waiting and hiding. Ophelia uses her staff to create a zone of truth, and with that, everything is brought into the open. Some parents see the error of their ways, others have their eyes opened to things that were happening right under their noses, and some are taken away in shackles by the town sheriff. But not before Saleya can dish out her own form of justice with a firebolt straight to one man's nether regions. The group pulls the Evanwaters aside, save for Albert, who is being pulled away by the sheriff. The party shows them the contract that they found, and Soteria explains that she believes that their daughter Victoria is still alive. With the agreement that they will try to send Victoria home if they can find her, the party leaves for Boulder's Gate to collect their reward, with Charlie in tow. Even though the hour is late, the party is happily welcomed back to the Lust of the Dragon, and Iovana, happy with their results, gives them 10,000 gold and a magical box that can produce a random pie at dawn. Iovana also tells them of a caravan hiring protectors that is heading south to Calimport the day after tomorrow. There is a bit of tension between Draco and Charlie over the splitting of Iovana's reward money, and in a fit of frustration, Charlie leaves. After the party leaves a the brothel, they run into Zerith Bariani again, who apologizes for running off on them, but he has a bit of bad blood with Yovana and promises to continue to guide the party through Baldur's Gate, if they still want him to. Soteria makes a move, and Zerith ends up sharing a room at the inn with her for the night. The following day, the party does some shopping and wanders the city with Zerith as their guide. The next day, when the party goes to find the caravan they were told about, called simply Bob's Caravan, they are met with an elven woman with black hair and beautiful dark blue eyes who introduces herself as Leo Movi, or just Leo to her friends. The sight of this woman gains a strong reaction from Saleya, but before anything can be said, an impossibly old man staggers up to them and asks if they are his new hires. When the group responds yes, he starts to lead them on a tour and shortly turns to ask them again if they are his new hires. This process repeats two more times, before a grey-skinned tiefling with long white hair tied back in a braid runs up to them to apologize for her father's lack of memory, and informs them that they are indeed the ones who hired them from Iovana's recommendation. She introduces herself as Roberta, or Bobby, and she introduces them to the rest of the workers of the caravan. Miradia Strongeye, a female minotaur cursed to never be able to hold a weapon or fight, Coursing River, an overly paranoid male tabaxi, Luca Hartmart, a flamboyant man with a gift in the kitchen, and Y33T, or Yeet, a warforged whose only programming is to throw problems as far as he can. Roberta then shows them to a three-tiered wagon that they are told is theirs to use for the duration of their time with the caravan, and everyone is quick to go pick out their sleeping arrangements, except for Saleya and the new elven woman. Saleya corners Leo outside of their wagon and demands to know who she is and what she's doing. 
Leo teases Celia a little bit before her form shifts and Charlie is left standing in her place. Charlie explains that she could change her appearance and that she was just trying to play a little joke on them. Celia is not amused and, with a question from Charlie, explains that Leo Moby is someone very important to her from her past, someone she hasn't seen in a long time. Inside the wagon, Charlie's secret is revealed, and she and Soteria had a little chat over tea about her powers. Charlie explains that she can change what her body looks like, but her armor is what changes her clothes. She doesn't know what this power is or why she has it, and that is why she's traveling, to find out who she really is. Travel down the coast way, for the most part, is uneventful until one night, while the party is sitting around the campfire with the rest of the caravan, and Bob is recounting the tale of the time he had relations with a banshee. The camp is attacked by a pack of hellhounds. It's a perilous fight, but the group manages to come out on top. Unfortunately, Tegermore is not happy with the outcome. Realizing that he is still going to be chased, Tegermore speaks in the heads of Draco, Drock, Soteria, Akda, and Trayvok. He tells them that if they're going to continue their foolish pursuit, then they can at least be useful to him. They won't realize what that means until later. The caravan reaches Candlekeep, and the party learns of the grand library that the city is known for, and they decide to follow Roberta and Yeet up the winding path of the city to the tallest building on the cliffside. Roberta explains that the crest on the crates they are transporting is from a well-to-do family in Neverwinter called the Cloudspires. They donate books to the library in exchange for access to the library's many priceless and rare tomes. On their way up to the library, some of the members of the party notice that they are being tailed, and Charlie, Soteria, Celia, and Trayvok split off to check it out, while Octa, Draco, and Drock continue on with Roberta and Yeet. The ones that went off to find the stalker manage to corner them in an alley, and the person shyly introduces themselves as Corilla Weathersby, a half-elven woman who claims to recognize Celia as the Princess of Evermeet. She asks for information from Evermeet and adds fire to the paranoid fuel that rages in Celia's mind as she informs them that her mother went to visit family on Evermeet several weeks ago and has yet to return. As they are having this conversation, Trayvok and Soteria feel a pulsing coming from inside their bags, and when they investigate, they find several sheets of parchment with elegant red borders and words magically appearing on them. They both recognize with worry and fear contracts similar to what they have with Tegramore. Soteria tries to leave the situation and is immediately struck with a massive amount of psychic damage. With confirmation that she will let her know if she finds anything out, Soleil and the others part ways with Corilla. The two groups eventually meet back up, and once they're all safely in a room at a nearby inn, Soteria and Trayvok tell the others what happened with the contracts. They all agree that they're going to have to be careful with them and with who they speak to until Tegramore and Mormorose can be found and dealt with. That night, Soteria has another dream, one of clouds in the night sky. It's peaceful and calm, and she sees a woman with features similar to her own, and the woman says a name, Theora. The woman quickly fades into Aural, and the dream turns into a nightmare. Soteria wakes to her tattoo covered in frost, and out of the corner of her eye, she can almost see a figure in a flash of blue before it's gone from her vision. She keeps this to herself. Their travels to Zaspur are eventful, to say the least. They encounter a band of relentless bandits in a valley, meet a male gnome in a small town called Tunstead, who is trying to create some kind of a firearm, and the party barely avoids another contract trap. And the road through the cloud peaks greets them with two very angry fire giants. Roberta talks to Soteria about her past and gives her some advice to visit Neverwinter when she has the chance. It's when the caravan stops in a small village called Middlesbrough that things start to get a bit complicated for the party of would-be heroes. 
As Trayvok is taking a stroll through town, he overhears a young boy arguing with his father about magical education. He has a heartfelt conversation with a boy who he comes to learn is called Gene Wardley. Gene has managed to teach himself a bit of magic and wishes to attend the Zossesburg Academy, but his father insists it's a silly notion that he needs to stay and work with the family on the farms. That night, as the party is settling down for bed, they all notice that something is a bit off in their wagon. They have a stowaway. Gene had snuck onto the wagon and was hoping to stay hidden long enough that it would be too late for them to return him home. After hearing his story, the group allows him to stay hidden away from the rest of the caravan and help him to get into the academy in Zossesburg. After everyone goes to sleep, Charlie transforms herself into Jean and sneaks out. Unbeknownst to her, Draco tracks her departure. She sneaks into Jean's house and leaves a note for his father so he will know where his son has gone. It takes a few days for Roberta to notice that the party is hiding something and when she is told that Jean is with them, she's disappointed, but not mad. Bob's caravan is good friends with everyone in Middlesboro, and she knew about the struggles Jean was facing. Consent that his father at least knew where he was, she agrees to let him continue the journey with them to Zossesburg. Trouble seems to follow the party as the rest of the way to Zossesburg is filled with never-ending excitement. They pick up two travelers that were attacked by a band of goblins, only to find out a few days later that the two men are actually Oni, and the party is quick to deal with them. They run into a wood elf named Zinleth, trying to run away from her home in the forest of Tenthir, and her bodyguard, Kelren is quick to save the party from possibly having Zinleth sign a contract. Their stop in Mossstone is completed with a well-needed rest not in a wagon, and before they know it, the skyline of Zossesburg is on the horizon. The party is told that there will be a two-day break in the city to rest and enjoy the Feast of the Moon Festival. Talk on the street of a band known as the Four Seasons puts Charlie into a fanatic fit, and the group has to physically drag her away from the city square where the performance will be held the next night. The group finds their way to the Zossesper Academy and manages to gain an audience with the headmistress, Magella Ravenheart, an older female high elf with clearly high expectations for anyone wishing to attend her school. The party manages to convince her to let Jean take the entrance exam, even though the semester is about to start and Jean is much older than most first-year students that they accept. With some help from Charlie and other members of the group, Trayvok hands over a handsome amount of gold, hoping that it will pay for a good portion of Jean's schooling. The party says their goodbyes to Jean and makes their way back to their inn for the night. The following day, Charlie practically vibrates with anticipation for the night's festivities. The group spends the day enjoying the festival, playing games, and eating way too much food. Before, just as the sun starts to go down, music starts pouring from tall wooden posts with odd funnels attached to the top of them. Recognizing the music of the Four Seasons, Charlie leads the group through the crowd as close to the stage as she can get, explaining that the Four Seasons is a band of bards made up of four Aladdin siblings, Zedrian, Olsena, Baylin, and Anmia of Idril, each one representing a different season on stage, summer, winter, spring, and autumn, respectively. While the Four Seasons are performing, the group sees that Anmiev notices them and says something to Zedrian, which causes the male summer Aladdin to lock eyes with Charlie. In the middle of the show, Belin announces that they are going to do a special song, and Anmiev walks out into the crowd. When she reaches the party, she starts to sing, and it appears that each member of the group receives a bit of a premonition. When the concert is over, the elves vanish from the stage, much to Charlie's dismay. Later that night, when she is getting ready for bed, a small stone falls from Charlie's pocket, and she recognizes it as a Siri stone, a small enchanted stone that, when activated, plays a song of which Charlie has several. When she activates this one, she hears a song from the Four Seasons that she's never heard before. 
a lovely song about a city called Caledonia. That night, Charlie has a dream of a huge city with towering buildings built among the trees. The next morning, Drock receives a sending from Falros, telling him that he has heard rumors that Mormros might be in Calimport, and to find Estrellas Pearl when they get there. With a more concrete destination, the party sets out with renewed vigor. Their stop in Memnon is completed with a quick trip to the marketplace of the Changebringer, and a quiet night. Back on the road, they run into Lyrishay Rainwhisper, a young human woman fleeing a small village to the south that she explains is on a bit of a witch hunt over several kids that have gone missing. She left for fear of her life because she is a medicine woman and hopes to make it as a successful healer in Memnon. The contracted members of the party suffer some psychic damage as the contracts in their packs go unsigned as Lyrishay rides away from them. Just outside of Calimport, they reach the small town that Lyrishay had told them about. A man dressed in fine clothes approaches them and asks for their help. He explains that he is the mayor of the small town and tells them about the situation. He believes that they have caught the man responsible, but the town is such a peaceful one that he doesn't know how to deal with the situation and asks the party to pass judgment on the man. He leads them to his home, where the man is being held in his cellar. Upon meeting the ragged old man, it seems that he and Drock recognize each other. It turns out that the man, Vittorio Bronwell, was a family doctor for Drock and Draco's father and stepmother. Vittorio explains that he is innocent, but the townspeople don't trust his advanced studies in medicine. The group agrees to try to clear his name and start their investigation. After a search of Vittorio's home, a stakeout at the local oasis where people are rumored to go missing, and a visit from a red-cloaked individual, the party has about as much information as when they started. All they managed to gather was Vittorio's notebooks and a note shot at them via an arrow from the red-cloaked figure that said, Tell the old man that his treachery has not been forgotten. They decide to send Charlie into the cellar to talk to Vittorio in the form of the red-cloaked figure, which nearly gives the poor man a heart attack. Charlie changes back quickly, and the party shows him the note. He relents and admits that he was once a member of the Red Wizards of Fae, but he ran away from them and has been hiding for years. The group all agrees that Vittorio is innocent, and they come up with a plan to take him with them and tell the townspeople that they are going to execute him outside of town so they don't have to see it. The townspeople all agree with this judgment and are content accepting Vittorio as a scapegoat. And with that, the group leaves the town, taking Vittorio with them. After a few more days of travel in the desert, the caravan finally reaches the grand port city of Calimport. And upon entering the city, Zuteria is assaulted by a vision. She sees flashes of the Temple of Arl, the altar, Mirabelle in ceremonial garb, her friend Clara with an identical tattoo on her chest chained to the altar. Clara's eyes going white as a tattoo glows and she screams. Then a male voice telling her, Midwinter, hurry. Soteria comes back to herself with her friends staring at her, and she has to make promises to tell them what happened once they get to Estrella's Pearl. On their way to Estrella's Pearl, Draco and Drock explain the wards of the city and how things work in Calimport, including the fact that slaves are a huge part of the city's inner workings, and that making a scene over it is sure to get them the wrong kind of attention. Estrella's Pearl turns out to be a lovely little inn and tavern run by a beautiful middle-aged woman named Estrella. She tells the party that she had been expecting them and pulls out a bundle that she says Falrost asked her to gather for them. Inside, the group finds two pouches of diamond dust and several different sized diamonds. Estrella says that they are for emergencies. Before bed, Soteri makes good on her promise and tells the others about the visions she had been seeing and a bit more about her past. The party agrees to help her as soon as they can solve the problem with Tagamore and Mormoros. 
The next day, the group decides to explore the city, starting with the temple to the Raven Queen that the two Dragonborn brothers grew up in. On the way, the brothers explain their past in a bit more detail, about how their mother was a slave for a nobleman in town, and they were the result of a forced affair on their mother and how their father's wife framed their mother for the theft of jewelry, which left them on the streets. They went on to explain that a few years after that, their mother died and the Temple of the Raven Queen took them in. At the temple, the party meets Zarya Almel, a gold dragonborn and Draco's monk mentor, who is beyond happy to see the brothers again. She tells them that Matteo Adavro, the head cleric and Drock's mentor, has been ill and is in bed. She takes them to see him, and seeing his old student puts a smile on his face. After their reunion or assurances that he is fine and will certainly recover, the group says their goodbyes and heads back into the city. While shopping in the market, Draco and Drock spot a familiar face in the crowd. A noblewoman, finely dressed with a young girl in equally fine clothing at her side. This noblewoman is shouting at what is surely a slave, and Drock, unable to contain his anger, storms forward and confronts Elizabeth Ashbrook. Elizabeth doesn't seem to recognize Drock and tells him to mind his business before turning to the girl who she calls Dracenia and walks away in a huff. After calming the brothers down, the group manages to do a bit of shopping, and with the help of Charlie's shape-shifting abilities and some well-timed illusion spells, the party walks away from the market to flying carpets richer. In the Hammer District, Trayvok has his hammer, which he has been trying to inspect throughout the journey, looked at by Altair at the Fire Squire. Shockingly enough, Altair pulls a flaming mallet from his forge and strikes Trayvok's hammer, and when he does, there is a blast of fiery energy that emits from the hammer and seems to be held within it. Altair tells him that he doesn't know what kind of hammer it is or what enchantment might be on it, but there's something powerful going on with it. That evening, on the way back to Estrella's Pearl, the group notices that they are being followed, and decides to make a quick escape into the inn. They sit down for a dinner, waiting for the mysterious person to walk in, and soon enough, someone does. A young woman in a mask walks into the tavern and hesitantly walks up to their table. She removes her mask, revealing the girl that was with Elizabeth earlier that day. She introduces herself as Dracenia, and that she is Drock and Draco's sister. Dracenia explains that she wants their help because she thinks her mother is poisoning her father. When the Dragonborn brothers spout off insult after insult, Dracenia looks confused. She claims that her father is nothing but kind and generous, and that she was raised on stories of the two of them. She says that she can pay them and that her fiancé would also be appreciative if they were to help. So the party agrees, and they spend the next two days scouting out the Ashbrook Manor. The group uses a mix of bag-of-holding shenanigans and dimension door spells to break into the house. After looking around and taking a few things, towels, soap, a tankard, and yet another flying carpet, before finding a journal written by Draco and Drock's father, Renault. The journal tells a very different story from what their mother had told them. Renault writes about how he loved their mother, Akra, and wanted to have a life with her, and his regrets when he found out about the lies his wife had told him. But Akra had already died, and the brothers had left the city before he could find her again. This left Draco and Drock with a bit of an emotional dilemma, but they didn't have time to work through it before the rest of the party found a secret hidden tunnel behind the fireplace. The tunnel led down to a hidden room under the house which appeared to be a torture chamber and a worship space for Grazit. As they inspect the room, three Cambians appear and a fight ensues. Partway into the fight, Elizabeth enters the room and after a short introduction and revealing that one of the Cambians is actually Drock and Draco's true sister, she transforms into a succubus and joins the fray. The battle is bloody and nearly ends in disaster when Saleya can't resist the fiend's charm, but the party manages to pull through victoriously. 
With the proof in hand of Elizabeth's treachery, the group makes their way up to the house where Jersenia is looking for them. It's a long night of conversations and revelations that ends in the brothers somewhat making amends with their father. The next day, Dracenia gives the party a broken chain link, telling them that she, as well as her friends Male Earth Genasi Slate, Female Human Nixie, Male Water Genasi Neptune, and Female Fire Genasi Sizzle, are part of an underground organization called the Chainbreakers, a group set on the freeing of all slaves in Calimport. The party shares pie from the pie box and after a short conversation realizes that they should identify it. And after having the box for over a month, they find out that they can attune to it, and the different flavors of pie provide resistance to a certain type of damage. With the success of identifying the pie box, Charlie tries to identify Trayvok's hammer, and is left with a splitting headache by the knowledge that it is indeed magical and needs to be attuned. The group then sets back out on their original task of finding Mormoros. They decide to split up to search more of the city, with Drock and Draco going with their sister and the rest of the Chainbreakers, and Charlie, Soteria, Octa, Trayvok, and Saleya making up the second group. Their search leads them through the seedier side of Calimport to a casino known as the Celestial Palm, and after a look through the gaudy establishment and a talk with the owner, Geronimus, that doesn't go too well, they are kicked out. But they don't let that get them down as they head to the Copper Ante, run by a lovely halfling woman named Davel. She explains that she doesn't know who Mormoros is, only that she's kicked him out a few times for drug-related incidents. She admits that her establishment houses a secret dream flake den in the back, but it's heavily regulated and safe. She agrees to sell some to the party, lest they get it from someone else less reputable and end up hurt. She then points them in the direction of the Mystic Tavern, run by a paranoid and sketchy human called Salim. On the way over to the Mystic Tavern, Saleya receives a sending from her brother, solidifying the fears that she's had over the past weeks. Things are not well at home, and he wants her to come back. The last thing he says is that their mother is dead. Saleya sends a response, but her brother doesn't say anything else, and the rest of the party has to talk Saleya down from doing some of their newly acquired dream flake in an alley. Then they make it to the Mystic Tavern, and with a tense interrogation, Salim cracks and tells them that Mormoros works with the Red Wizards, and he's just a drug supplier for him. He also says that Mormoros has dealings with Geronimus from the Celestial Palm. The party leaves the tavern and starts to come up with a plan to get back into the Celestial Palm before Neptune comes running out of an alley looking for them. He says that their investigation got a bit hairy and their group got separated and the Dragonborns are missing. Neptune also tells them that there's a letter addressed to them back at Ashbrook Manor. Upon returning back to the manor and reading the letter, it's an invitation from Mormoros to meet him in the main market the next day and that they would be wise to do so if they ever want to see Draco and Drock again. The party makes their plan and prepares for the fight to come. The group does some last-minute shopping, and Trayvok attunes to his hammer. As he does, it bursts into flames, and he comes to know it as the Pyre Mall. In the market square the next day, Charlie changes her form to blend in with a crowd as the rest of the party make their way through the crowded market to Mormoros, who is standing on a raised platform on the square. They notice Drock in chains, standing oddly between Mormoros and an unbound Draco. Mormoros states loudly that this is Draco's chance to prove his loyalty and tells him to pick one of his companions. With a glare down at his brother, Draco proclaims that he is tired of living in his shadow, and Mormoros casts a familiar spell at Drock, who only has enough time to look up with betrayal at his brother before falling dead to the ground. The murder causes a panic in the crowd, and the party immediately leaps into action, but not before Draco can scurry away. Tagramore appears on a nearby rooftop to survey the battle, but doesn't intervene. It is a long and trying battle, but with clever uses of polymorph, the party is victorious, 
but not without a mass amount of damage being done to the square. Tegramore congratulates them on a job well done and tells them that they are free of their contracts and that they should ask Mormoros their questions quickly. Mormoros tells them that they are looking for a woman named Thalia, a name that sparks recognition in Charlie's eyes. They make quick work of taking anything of value from Mormoros and Drock before the party is quickly surrounded by town guards. Thinking on her feet, Charlie transforms into Dracenia and comes to the party's rescue, turning what was going to be a mass arrest into a trip for questioning. Just as they are being taken away, Okta finds herself in darkness. She is greeted by a woman in dark clothing with a white porcelain mask. The woman says that she is the Raven Queen, the enemy to all who cheat death, and she wants Okta to be her chosen warrior. Okta agrees and is granted a blessing from the Raven Queen before finding herself back with her friends. At the guard's hall, the party is questioned by the captain of the guard, Khalil Nasir, about what went down in the market, and in the middle of it, a man is led into the room and seems to be rather puzzled about the sight of Charlie as Dracenia, but seems to play it off well as he is Zahir Bilal, Dracenia's fiancé. With his help, the party manages to get off with a request to never fight in the city and to pay for the damages they caused. As they are leaving the guard hall, Zahir explains that Dracenia had seen most of the fight and had asked him to come to help them out. They meet with Dracenia in a nearby alley, and she is relieved to see them, but heartbroken about what has happened with her brothers. As this is happening, Soteria receives a sending from Thalros, asking if everything is alright, because he can't reach Drock and their contracts went up in flames. Soteria assures him that they are fine and that they'll talk later. Thalros messages her again and tells her to ask Estrella to use her teleportation circle to come back to Whitefair as soon as they can, information that she is quick to pass on to the party. Over the next day and a half, they inspect the one thing they found on Mormoros, which was a small hand-sized door. Upon identifying it, they discover that it is a portable home, and when Soteria attunes to it, she activates it and the party goes inside. Inside, the party finds a sending stone, a wand of wonder, wings of flying, a decanter of endless water, and a luxurious bedroll, along with plenty of coin. They also found papers of sales with Geronimus matching the crates of drugs in the room as well as notes on the Red Wizards and items only titled as Vestiges. The last thing they find is a note written to Mormoros from a T.M., saying that his efforts have been noticed. It also mentions something about someone's restoration, and that if Mormoros can find the Vestiges, he will be rewarded, and he is always being watched. The group has a long conversation about what they found, and discovers that Charlie knows more than she is letting on about Saleya and Okta. Saleya talks about her banishment, and Okta lets it out of the bag that she used to be a member of the Zentarum, an underground black network centered in Waterdeep. The party tells the Ashbooks what happened with Drock, and Renault and Dracenia agree that Drock's remains should be taken to the Temple of the Raven Queen, and Renault says that he will take care of it. They also have a conversation about the notes they found, and Dracenia tells them what she can about the Red Wizards, that they are a group of evil wizards that used to exist before the Spell Plague, and were led by a lich called Saz Tam but he disappeared when the Spell Plague happened. She goes on to tell them that the Spell Plague happened about 500 years ago, and was the result of the death of the goddess of magic, Mistra. Before the party gets ready to leave, Zahir and Dracenia introduce them to a brass dragonborn named Yarkris, who has agreed to travel with them and help them on their quest. With the use of Estrella's teleportation circle, they make it safely back to Thalros's tower in Whitefair. They meet with Lyanna and Falros and introduce their new friends and tell them what happened with Drock and that they should be wary of Draco. Falros recognizes Trayvok's hammer and tells him that it's a vestige of divergence, 
a massively powerful and ancient magical item from the times of the Spell Plague. Charlie throws herself into the reading of any books Falros has on the topic and learns that the Red Wizards dealt in various underground trades to fund their organization. Saztam took over the Red Wizards, and when he tried to usurp the title of God of Magic from Mistra, the vestiges of Divergence were created to stop him. Meanwhile, Saleya and Trayvok play musical teleportation circle to gain the runes needed to be able to travel to the Lust of the Dragon in Waterdeep. Once everyone has reconvened, they decide to go shopping. Octa picks up her blue dragon scale armor, which will give her resistance to cold damage. Soteria picks up a filter of love and a potion of arcane recovery. Trayvok buys an Ion stone, and Yarkris acquires a pendant called the Legacy of the Dragonborn. The party also purchases some message rings and commissions some cold weather clothes. They then return to their house and catch up with David and Rose, who had gotten a cat for the house, claiming that there was a bit of a mouse problem, but Jezeline took care of it. They have a visit with Mercea, and Saleya asks him if he can see anything else about his home or mother, and sadly, Mercea's gift can't seem to find anything on Saleya's mother. Charlie asks about Thalia, and Mercea says that he can see an evil aura of necromancy around the drow woman. They decide to ask him if he can discern the whereabouts of the Spire of Conflux, and they are told that it is somewhere cold and in the hands of a priestess. The next vestige on the list is the Kiss of the Changebringer, which Mercia tells them is in the hands of a young elven woman in finer clothes, and that she is surrounded by greenery. The party only stays the night and teleports to Neverwinter Academy in the morning with the help of Falros. After a quick sign-in, the group makes their way out into the city and quickly notices missing person posters around the town with the likeness of Soteria on them. After a run-in with a would-be thief, the party meets Valdis Cloudspire, a human city watch lieutenant who seems to have a reaction to seeing Soteria. He requests that the party come with him and assures them that they aren't in trouble, there's just someone he wants them to meet. He leads them through town to a beautiful manor and has them wait in the foyer while he goes upstairs. The party notices family portraits hung on the wall, each one with a new child in it, except that while the other children grow older in the portraits, the father of the family always seems to be holding a baby. Valdis returns moments later with an older water genasi woman who looks eerily similar to Soteria. She introduces herself as Kytriana Cloudspire and explains that Valdis, her son, thinks that Soteria might be the Cloudspire's missing firstborn daughter. Kytriana pulls a bowl and a small vial of liquid from a nearby cabinet, explaining that they have had numerous people coming to them claiming to be her daughter, and that she had to come up with a way to verify their claims. She shows them how the liquid works by pouring it into the bowl and dropping in a drop of her blood, and Valdis's blood, which makes the potion glow a bright blue, meaning that the two share a bloodline. Soteria agrees to do the test as well, and when her blood drops into the bowl with Kytriana's, the potion glows blue again. Soteria has found her home, but this only leads her to more questions. Kytriana sends Valdis out to collect the rest of the family and invites the party in while she goes to start dinner, which is when the group learns that Yarkris has a talent for kitchen work. As Yarkris and Saleya help Kytriana in the kitchen, the rest of the group explores the house, where they find a study boasting of the family's achievements, including a clipping of an announcement of the firstborn daughter of the Cloudspire family, showing signs of magical capabilities as a young child. They also find multiple books on the spell plague that have been written by Kytriana herself. They all make their way back downstairs to the dining room as the rest of the family returns home. Soteria has a hard time processing her emotions as she is introduced to her father, Ivan, her little brother and sister, Zavinus and Marcelina, and Valdis's wife and one-year-old son, Meliana and Ansel. 
Dinner is filled with conversations about where Soteria has been and what the group is doing currently. Kytriana and Ivan explain how they believe that Soteria, who they had originally named Theora, was blessed by Astitia, the god of seas and water genasi. As a baby, Soteria's laughter could create small motes of light, and her crying made water ripple. The announcement of this, though, was their downfall, as Soteria was stolen from her nursery in the middle of the night. Upon announcing that they are trying to get to Evermeet, the group is told that they should be able to find an elf captain's ship to take them to the elven island down at the docks, and that they should ask around for Captain Brightwave of the Windgrace. Trayvok questions Kytriana about her job, and she explains that she is the headmistress of Neverwinter Academy, but before that, she studied magical history and was the professor of abjuration magic. Upon questioning her about the spell plague and the Red Wizards, she has quite a bit of information. The spell plague happened over 500 years ago and was a result of a war between the Red Wizards and the gods. The vestiges of Divergent were a huge part of the gods' success in the war, and when Trayvok shows off his hammer, Kytriana goes into a bit of a historian fanatic fit. After she calms herself down from the excitement of seeing a relic of history in person, Kytriana continues with the story of explaining that the Lich Saz Tam, with the help of his second-in-command Thalia Moonspire, and Mistra clashed, and that they both disappeared, causing the spell plague. She is dismissive of the Red Wizard's power, claiming that after the war, most, if not all of them, were killed or dispersed and went into hiding. With the meet-and-greets and official talks out of the way, Soteria has a chance to properly talk with her family and start to form relationships with them. When everyone goes off to bed, Soteria has a hard time bringing herself to sleep in what was once her childhood bedroom, and opts to sleep in the portable home instead. Which thoroughly intrigues Kytriana. Trayvok writes to Jean via magical paper birds that he bought back in Calimport, and Charlie sneaks off to talk with Kytriana in the study. Charlie tells her about her power and that she was hoping that someone as talented in magic as she is could shed some light on her situation. Kytriana reassures Charlie that she doesn't think she is a succubus, but that she might be a changeling, although she doesn't know much about them or where they come from. Their conversation shifts to Thalia, and Kytriana warns her that if the Red Wizards are on the rise, like they claim, that Thalia is a very dangerous individual, and that they should be careful. Kytriana says that she will do a bit of research on Thalia and let them know what she finds. She also gives Charlie a book on the vestiges of Divergence that have rough sketches of what the vestiges might look like, and explains that they are most likely in a dormant state and won't look exactly like how they do in the pictures. The next morning, when the party comes down for breakfast, they realize that Charlie is missing, and Kytriana is quick to reassure them that Charlie woke up early and said that she had some personal errands she needed to run and would be back for dinner. After breakfast, the group heads down to the docks and talks with the harbor master, where they meet a young man that goes by the name Latos, and introduces himself as a druid. After getting to the location of the Windgrace, the party talks a bit more with Latos, and they agree to let him join, since he appears to be trying to head in the same direction as them, north. Without much trouble, they manage to find the Windgrace and are greeted by a sea elf called Eric Brightwave. And then when the group addresses him as captain, another sea elf appears and corrects them. Kyrora Brightwave, Eric's sister, is a beautiful female sea elf and immediately captures the eye of both Solea and Soteria. They say that they want to hire them to take them to Evermeet, and Kyrora laughs, telling them that no one has gone to Evermeet in a few months because any ships that go haven't been coming back. In a private conversation on the next dock over, Solea reveals who she is and begs Kyrora to take her home. It cost a big chunk of gold. 
It costs a big chunk of gold, but Kyrora agrees under the stipulation that if she deems it too dangerous for her crew, she will turn around. With passage booked, the group decides to head back to the Cloudspire Manor, but when they realize that no one is home because they had jobs in school, they decide to go shopping. They find an interesting weapon shop called Herbert Herberderber's Hammering, a blacksmith, run by a man named Herbert Herberderber. Although it doesn't appear like his shop is very successful as Herbert specializes in less than practical items, the group is mesmerized with his wares and purchases a giant spork, an oversized meat tenderizer hammer, and a knife with holes in it that he claims is great for cutting cheese. So Teria commissions the giant knife and fork to go with her spork, and Herbert is beyond delighted to accept. Herbert sends them off with directions to the town's only magic shop since magical items are strictly regulated by and through the academy. The group finds themselves in yet another fascinatingly intriguing store known as Zenovia's Zone of Zealotries. Inside, they are met by an imposing female Goliath named Zenovia and find out that her store is mostly stocked with harmless magical trinkets and items such as a wand of smiles, a broom of self-sweeping, an orb of time, and fireworks. After a bit of disappointment, the group ends up buying an ever-hot tea set, a candle of the deep, charlatan's dye, a staff of flowers, and for Yarkris, Heward's handy spice pouch. As the party is off gallivanting through town, Charlie is searching through tavern after tavern for information on changelings, and eventually she is rewarded. An older gnome barkeep tells Charlie that if she wants more information on changelings, she should seek out someone by the name of Rix in a tavern called the Tangled Vine. The only trick is the Tangled Vine moves around, teleporting from tree to tree, and no one knows when or where it will show up. Happy with the information she was able to gain, Charlie meets back up with the group at the Cloudspire Manor. The next day, the Cloudspires see them off with packed lunches from Kytriana and a small gift for Cetaria. A necklace with the Cloudspire family crest, which is supposed to be given to the firstborn daughter of the family on her 18th birthday. Kytriana also tells the group that they might be able to find Fenthris, another vestige of divergence, in the Feywild guarded by something. She tells them that the secret of Fenthris is known but to a select few bards who keep it well to themselves. She sends them off with the last bit of advice that if they keep their ears open, they'll be surprised by what they hear. The party makes their way to the Windgrace, where the crew is hard at work getting ready to depart. They are brought on board and introduced to the crew. Silas Olareth, a male triton who manages the sails and crow's nests. Orlin Emaseth, a female water genasi that works with the sails and rigging. Linus, a male localath with his pet sea otter Samson that helps as a basic ship hand and mans the cannons. Harlan Vulamath, a female triton who is the ship's navigator, and Kozu, an older male twortle who happens to be the ship's doctor and helps with the cannons. The ship ride is a very eventful one. Yarkris successfully uses rope to flirt his way into Eoric's quarters, while Soteria and Solea take turns trying to flirt with the captain. Solea shoots her shot with Kyrora while tipsy on wine and is quickly shot down by Kyrora telling her to come back when she's sober if she wants to talk. Charlie manages to have a slumber party with Kyrora where she discovers that the sea elf captain has a bit of a sweet tooth, but no information on changelings. Soteria hears a call in the middle of the night and it leads her to the ship's small shrine to Istitia where Kyrora walks in on her. Kyrora explains that Istitia protects them from Umberly's wrath and gives them safe travel and fair winds. She also tells Soteria how she believes that he saved her and her brother from a bad shipwreck when they were children and now she does her best to serve him. The next few days present the ship and its crew with interesting events. An island that isn't on any map of Harlan's, 
some shipwrecked strangers, and an oddly empty yet fully functional ship. As it turns out, the ship is a huge mimic that reveals itself and attacks when Octa shoots an arrow at it. The fight drags on and the Windgrace takes some damage, but with heavy blows from Yarkris and Trayvok, they manage to sink the ship mimic. That night, the crew celebrates their victory and Solea apologizes to Kyrora about the other night when she was drunk. Kyrora invites Solea into her cabin and asks her if she has anyone she cares about. Solea is not expecting this kind of conversation, but admits that she did in the past, but not anymore. Kyrora admits that she knows why Solea was banished from Evermeet and that she was the one who brought Leomovi and her family to and from Evermeet. She gives Solea a letter that she says is from Leomovi and tells her that even though it's been three years, that's nothing to an elf, and if she wants Leomovi, to go get her. The next few days are uneventful until there is a strange whistle pattern from up in the crow's nest. The deckhands rush to raise the sails and drop the anchor as Kyrora summons a fog to encircle the ship. Silas comes down from the crow's nest and whispers something to Kyrora. Kyrora approaches Saleh and tells her that they've been to Evermeet dozens of times, but is it usually patrolled by ships manned by werewolves? Saleh is quick to say that no, it's not, and it solidifies her fears that her home is in danger. After some time contemplating how to get onto the island, the group decides that Yarkris and Charlie will hop in the bag of holding, and Trayvok, Latos, Soteri, and Octa will ride in Saleh's mouth as she polymorphs herself into a whale. The group is lucky enough to sneak past the patrol ships and make it to a beach on the side of Evermeet. Once on the shore of Evermeet, the party feels a sense of peace roll over them, and Saleya is brought to tears after finally returning home. As they are walking up the beach to the trees, they see a set of footprints and follow them to an old tree, and hiding in an opening in the tree and its roots, they find a tired and beaten young man, a man who Charlie instantly recognizes as her old childhood friend and quickly reverts to her default form. After a confused yet heartfelt reunion, Charlie introduces him as Victor Vetanari, the son of a noble family in Waterdeep. Victor explains that he has been on his way to Evermeet in an attempt to talk trade negotiations via international waters, since only elves are allowed on Evermeet. He also tells them that he had been having dreams about a prophecy that he thinks that they are the ones he's supposed to find. The group sets up the portable house and gets Victor some much-needed medical attention. Many side conversations happen, such as Latos explaining that he is from the High Forest and that he was raised by a druid that found him in the woods, and that's all he can remember from his childhood. Charlie and Victor have a private conversation in a separate room, where Victor informs Charlie that not all is well with his family. They had gotten into a bit of trouble and his father is involved with less than great people. He says he is on a mission not only to save his family's status, but also their souls. He informs her that his older brother, Ateus, was killed six months ago. Charlie is scared of what his reaction might be, but shows him her true form and tells him that she left home to try to figure out what she was, and now she has a lead, that she's a changeling. Victor tells her that she's still full of surprises and gives her a big hug. The next morning, the group treks the rest of the way through the forest and finally makes it to the city of Evermeet. With the use of an invisibility spell, Saleya sneaks down to the edge of the market square and sends a message to a vendor that she recognizes. The ban, once he calms down from hearing his princess's voice in his head, tells her that Elzalor, the prince from Evereska, invaded and took over Evermeet and brought the werewolves and creatures called Dream Eaters with him. The man explains that they're terrifying creatures that can kill with just a few swipes of their claws. Then Saleya sees a floating figure round a corner and sees a spectral black figure with skeletal face that looks like it's made of wisps of shadow and long, deadly-looking claws. Saleya regroups with everyone else and tells them of an escape tunnel they can use to get into the castle. 
Saleya disguises herself the best she can as Charlie takes on her image. They make their way through the tunnel and into the castle's underground dungeon, where they see several castle inhabitants in cells with a single sleeping guard to keep watch. Yarkris makes quick work of stringing up the guard and turning him into an elven pinata so they can ask him questions, while the others take the keys and free the captives, which include the captain of the guard, Dane Calriath, and Saleya's mentor and the court's grand mage, Brythel Olathir. Brythel talks to the Charlie Saleya and gives a quick rundown of what happened while Saleya feeds Charlie lines on what to say to him via her message ring. After a tense moment of Saleya wanting Brythel to come with them, she eventually relents and lets him go with Dane and the others to try to free the other guards being held captive around the city. Not at all happy with the treatment of her family, Saleya takes her frustrations out on the guard and things do not end well for him. They head up a spiral staircase into a secret armory and create a peephole to see into the throne room, where they see a male drow named Kadal sitting on one of the thrones, a sophisticated-looking elven man who Saleya recognizes as Elzalor, and a particularly nasty-looking set of armor. The party moves into position with the direction of Saleya, and then she steps out into the throne room, invisible to confront Elzalor. Elzalor is not one to scare easily, and remarked fictitiously that she is not supposed to be on Evermeet. He goes on to offer everything that she wants in exchange for working and ruling Evermeet for him. He'll give her her brother, her home, her people, and Liamovi if she agrees. Saleya hesitates for more than a moment. Eventually, Saleya gives her answer in the form of a Saleya special and fireballs the throne dais, kicking off combat and alerting everyone to attack. Frustratingly enough, Elzalor and Kadal make a swift departure via teleportation magic, and the group is left to fight the armor and a dream eater that seems to come from nowhere. The battle is a long and bloody one, and soon the group has to deal with werewolves as well. During the battle, fighting against the fear of Charlie's rejection, Victor lets out his wings, exposing the fact that he is a fallen Azamar. Charlie thinks he looks awesome, much to Victor's relief. Eventually, they manage to defeat the armor, and Saleya recognizes the person inside of it to be her brother Lamriel which seems to break her a bit. They deal with the last of the werewolves, and Saleya stops Victor from slitting her brother's throat. They carefully remove the armor from Lamriel, which seems to have attached itself to him via odd tendrils, leaving marks on his body. They heal Lamriel the best they can, but there's not enough time for them to catch their breath if they want to try to catch Elzalor. The group recoups the best they can, and Lamriel suits up to join the fray to save his homeland. Upon leaving the castle, they see heads of court members and family members on pikes leading up to the bridge to the castle, and at the end of the bridge is their mother's head. With Saleya's help, Lamriel takes it down and they wrap it in a cloth to be dealt with later. The group hops on their flying carpets and books it to the harbor, only to see the Everuskan skyships already taking off from the docks. It doesn't take much to know that they will never catch up. So they decide to turn around and head back to the city to help the others in taking it back. They manage to find Lamriel in the scuffle that is an almost all-out war waging in the city, but not before they see him attacked and bitten by a werewolf. With renewed anger, Saleya and the others join the fight. With the help of Trayvok and Yarkris, Victor sends the first werewolf in his face, and to help even further, turns Lamriel into a giant crab. After freeing the last of the loyal Evermeet guards, then insisting Lamriel be taken back to the castle, and the party continues on clearing the city of all dream eaters and werewolves returning to the castle at sunset, battered and beaten, but victorious. Braithel meets them in the front foyer of the castle and confirms what Saleya feared, that Lamriel has been infected with lycanthropy. 
After a discussion of what can be done to help it, Braithel cracks a joke about the party possibly knowing an archdruid, to which Charlie, Octa, Trayvok, Soteria, and Solea remember that they do indeed know an archdruid, Ophelia Rainstar from Slumberhaven. They make the decision to go to her after they've had a day or two to rest, before Solea goes up to Lamriel's room to speak with him. Lamriel looks like he's seen better days, but he's trying to push through. He has a small box and a wrapped parcel on the bed with him, and he tells Solea that they are for her from their mother, Amlariel. The parcel is Amlariel's ruby brooch that she was never seen without, and the box was a recorded message from Amlariel, which turns Solea's life upside down. In the message, Amlariel explains that Solea is not her daughter, but in fact the result of an affair that Zaur had with a human woman from the mainland. She goes on to say that her ruling of banishment stands, and that the brooch is a family heirloom passed down to those who inherit Hephaestus's gift. Lastly, Amluriel gives her the last known location of a woman named Sarah Denthir, and tells Solea that even though everything they went through, in the end, she did love her. Solea and Lamriel share a heart-wrenching embrace, as Lamriel tells her that she is Stell, his sister, and nothing will ever change that. He then informs her that he has been researching Hephaestus, the ancient red dragon that blessed their family with power, the reason why Solea has the powers she has. Lamriel says that even though their mother banished her, only allowing her to return if she can find out what happened to the missing dragon, she never forbade anyone from helping her. He has a few leads and promises to let her know as soon as he finds out anything more. That night, while everyone was asleep in their own rooms, minus Charlie, who shacks up on the floor of Drayvok's room, they all have dreams. Odd dreams that they can all somehow see together. Celia dreams of fire and her mother. Soteria dreams of her temple and Arl offering her power. Octa dreams of the high forest and the day her mentor was taken by Black Sludge. Latos dreams of stars and his father telling him to keep his ring safe and to find his way home. Yarkas dreams of his mentor asking him what justice is and being shown a destroyed sword coast under a banner of a starburst encircled with red gems. Trayvok dreams of the day his father was killed by a woman in a red cloak and the spirit of his father telling him that he holds his innocence in his hands. Victor dreams of his brother, Ateus, telling him to protect those he loves, but he can't because his wings are in chains. Charlie dreams of a beautiful city among twisting trees and a single word, home, as well as a song. When they all wake up out of their shared dream, they notice Charlie walking outside towards the forest. With an alert of, Charlie's on the move, from Trayvok, he, along with Victor, Salea, Octa, and Soteria, rush out of the castle to catch her. Down in the forest, Charlie is stopped just short of wandering into a portal to the Feywild by Lamriel. When the rest of the group finally catches up, Lamriel explains what happened, and they all head back to the castle for a bit more sleep. The next day, Lamriel invites them all to tea, where he gets to know a bit about all of them, and they all learn a bit more about each other. Lamriel tells them about several pits that have been dug out in the back garden filled with dead bodies of Evermeet citizens and castle staff, with wounds similar to the ones he had once he was taken out of the armor. Lamriel then tells them about how Elzalore came to Evermeet and demanded that Evermeet be handed over to him by the orders of the Red Wizards, and how, because their mother was ill, she could do nothing to stop him and was eventually killed by Elzalore. He also explains that the reason why they might have all experienced each other's dreams is that Evermeet has a way of connecting people in their dreams who have a connection through fate or destiny. 
This is because Evermeet is a place that hinges on the borders of the Material Plane, Astral Plane, and the Feywild. They also discuss the vestiges of Divergence, which Lamriel is surprisingly well-versed in, telling them several names of the vestiges and the gods that created them. Victor reveals that he is actually looking for Mythcarver, and Charlie remembers seeing Zenrian of the Four Seasons with a similar-looking longsword. While they are having these conversations, Trevok, Charlie, Octa, Soteria, and Salea hear the familiar voice of Yovana in their heads inviting them to come visit her in Waterdeep if they want more work. After tea, Brythel shows the party how Elzalore got off the island so quickly. Tucked away behind a hidden and illusion-covered wall under the castle is a teleportation circle. Brythel explains that Salea wasn't told about it yet because she hadn't completed her training. He goes on to explain that she can use the circle, but because of Evermeet's magical aura from the Astral Plane and the Feywild, it might not always work. The party stays for one more night, and Charlie relocated to Victor's room, but not before they take a walk in the woods, with a few Evermeet guards as escort to see if they can find the place where the portal to the Feywild was. They manage to find it, but there's no portal this time. Victor tries to commune with the plants around them, and they are met with a soft female voice telling Charlie that it's not time for her to come home yet. That night, when they are all asleep, they have another shared dream, only this time it's just voices, and they come to the quick conclusion that these are probably the gods. The voices talk about a threat that they have faced before, but won't be able to fight this time, and mention champions, naming a few members of the party as they do. The next morning, down at breakfast, Brythel announces that Lamriel's coronation will be placed on hold until he is back at full health. Brythel and Lamriel give the party some gold and a pouch of reincarnation dust, and the party wastes no time as they say their goodbyes and head down to the teleportation circle to teleport to the Lust of the Dragon in Boulder's Gate. They make their way quickly to Slumberhaven and head straight to the lighthouse, but Ophelia doesn't seem to be home. The sheriff tells them that Ophelia comes to the town more often and spends some time at the school, which is where they find her. Once she is told of the situation, Ophelia quickly ushers them back to the lighthouse after sending a quick message to someone. She takes Victor alone up into the lighthouse against Yarkris's wishes. She starts talking to Victor and Celestial about his wings and why he has fallen. She gives him a bit of advice and answers some questions that he has in return about Helm, the god from which his family was granted their Azimir blood. Once back outside, Celea tries to teleport back to Evermeet, but the spell is unsuccessful. But Ophelia solves the problem easily by leading them to the huge tree behind the lighthouse and opening a portal in the tree that leads them to Evermeet. When they ask her how she knows how to teleport to Evermeet, she explains that she visited there a few hundred years ago and admits to knowing Salea's father as a young boy. Ophelia makes quick work of taking over the castle's kitchen and invites Latos to watch how she makes the cure. He might not be able to make it yet, but he might yet gain the power to do so in the future. Meanwhile, Charlie enters storytelling mode and recounts the group's adventures to Victor and Yarkris up to the current day. Yarkris and Victor debate on whether or not these people are actually the good guys. Yarkris talks a little bit too loudly to Victor and Charlie about making rings so he can propose to Eoric, and everyone eventually puts their two cents in. Salea even offers to let him look through the royal jewels. Yarkris visits with Kyrora to get her blessing and also Eoric's ring size. Kyrora is beyond excited and pulls Yarkris into a tight hug. After the cure for Lamriel's lycanthropy is complete and Lamriel has taken his nasty medicine, the group sits down with Ophelia and they discuss their dream of the gods. Ophelia answers their questions the best that she can, or will, and Charlie learns that Avandra, the Changebringer, is the goddess of the Changelings and that they are a race native to the Feywild. That night, 
Charlie and Victor each pray to their individual gods. Victor, with honesty and a desire to prove himself the way he thinks he should be seen, and Charlie in a more progressive manner. They are each granted an answer. Victor sees Helm holding Mythcarver, and as he drops it and it disappears, he claims that this is a start. Charlie hears the music from the night when she walked out to the woods, and they go to look out over the lake that surrounds the castle. In it, they see the same city that Charlie had seen in her dream the other night. The Siri stone that Amiev gave Charlie starts to play on its own, and Charlie hears the same voice from the woods tell her that she sees her, and she will find her way home soon, that she knows what she's looking for. And that's it. You're all caught up on everything that's happened so far in the campaign for Inspirational Crits. We hope you enjoyed this recap of the nearly two years that we've played this campaign, and we hope that you enjoy following us along for the rest of it as we continue on. I'll talk to you next time. Remember, stay weird.